part of Double P Media. DoublePmedia.com. Hey, spoiler alert. We're talking about Penny Dreadful City of Angels in the context of the most recent episode. If you haven't watched that episode yet, you might be spoiled. So watch, and then come back. Delightfully dreadful. Welcome to Delightfully Dreadful, still your fifth favorite podcast out of three active podcasts covering Penny Dreadful City of Angels. My name is Matt Murdock. You can call me Double M if you wish, or you can just call me Matt. You can actually call me Knucklehead if you wish. You can call me whatever you want. But today I am going to be talking to you with an initial reaction to Season 1, Episode 8 of Penny Dreadful City of Angels entitled Hide and Seek, which was written by Titania Suarez-Pico and directed by Sharif Folkson. Beautiful episode. And I don't have Catfish with me today. He's on a kind of a beach vacation day with Mrs. Catfish. So we're going to get back with our regular formatting this week. Instead, this is just kind of an initial reaction to most of the scenes no actual recapping. We're not going to have any of the awards or the games for this podcast that we normally have, which gives you some time to get that stuff for this week's episode into us. We're going to record on Monday evening, probably let's make 5 p.m. Pacific time on Monday, June 15th, your deadline to get in a three-word description of this episode, like my three-word description this week might be totally different show, which we'll talk about in a minute. We also like to hear what your favorite Magda incarnation was. Was it Frank? Was it Rio? Was it Elsa? Was it Alex? Uh, which one of those was your favorite this week? Because I'm calling Frank an incarnation of Magda now as well, even though it's not a Natalie Dormer incarnation. And also, we look for who was the best mortal helper for Magda each week, the person that was doing the most evil in the episode. We're going to include all of that in our regular podcast. We're going to, again, give you a deadline, June 15th, 2020, 5 p.m. Pacific time to get yours to us. How do you do that? You tweet to at DreadfulPod on Twitter, or you can send emails to dreadfulpodcast at gmail.com, or you can call our listener line and leave a message. That's area code 314-269-0421. Remember that regular phone charges may apply to that. You can also comment on our YouTube page or in a particular video for this one, so to speak. If you wish, you could leave it in the comments. We'll leave them there. You can comment at our blog, which has all of this information as well. That's dreadfulpodcast.wordpress.com. Has all the back episodes, has all of these links. That's really all you need to know. It's all things regarding this podcast. If you want to talk to our bosses, that's the Double P Media or Double P Podcast Network. Double P, well, Packed Podcasts, Podcast Network. Anyway, if you want to follow them on Twitter, because they've got some great things coming up, we just recently did a podcast, Catfish and I did, with Bubba regarding The Last Kingdom, Season 4. We reviewed that. 
Catfish and I had some nice little arguments in that one. You might find that fun to listen to. Bubba is always a blast to listen to as well. Not only that, but I won't be part of this because I've never watched Dark, but the Netflix slash German series Dark is coming out with a new season, I think the final season soon, and they will be covering that. So to get more information on all of those other great podcasts like Double P, Double P, Parsec Passion, which is their Mandalorian Star Wars podcast, you can find all of this information by following at the word double, the letters PHQ. That's at double PHQ. You can follow them there on Twitter or on Instagram, same handle, or you can go to facebook.com and join in the fun at facebook.com slash the word double, the letters PHQ. That's enough about the podcast, I think. Remember, we don't get any money for giving you this coverage, but we do require payment. And the payment that we require is your feedback. We want your thoughts. Your thoughts are much more important to us than our own thoughts. Uh, We just speak our mind, and we hope that you will too with us. Also, at dreadfulpodcast.wordpress.com, you can find links for podcast apps. Whatever podcast app that you're using to listen to this podcast, please, please, please leave us a written review. That's what helps us stay your fifth favorite podcast out of three active podcasts covering Penny Dreadful City of Angels. So let's get into talking about this episode, Season 1, Episode 8, Hide and Seek. Again, written by Titania Suarez-Pico and directed by Cherie Folkson. Please forgive me when I butcher the names of these fine, fine people who are producing such wonderful shows. Uh, It's not intended. I'm just a knucklehead that way, which is why you may want to call me knucklehead instead of double M. Let's get into this. And I guess I ought to give my you know, just kind of initial feelings about this episode overall before I dive into maybe each little individual plot line. Everything really ramped up this episode, right? I mean, it was amazing the difference between this show and all of the previous shows. Almost too much. It was such a startling change. It's almost like watching a watched pot You know, you're sitting in the kitchen, as Maria was, and you're watching this pot, and it just doesn't seem that the water ever boils. You turn away for a second, and you turn back around, and all of a sudden, the water's boiling over. That's kind of what I felt like this show represented in terms of, I don't know, an applicability way of, of saying the difference between the level of crazy in this show as compared to previous ones. And if you were not liking this show because of the lack of action or crazy this week, I think uh, that you probably got jolted back into saying, yeah, this is what I tuned in for. I still do think that Catfish might have been right, actually, last week when he said that this show is probably set up for like a three or four season arc. But I do like the fact that Unlike what he said, where he thought we might just get a little crazy in the last episode, we got some a little bit beforehand. It was, it's almost like Logan was like, wait a minute, we got to have something happen here, Miss Suarez-Pico. You must write something here that just goes crazy so that we don't lose everyone. And ratings have been down. We'll discuss that on our podcast later this week with Catfish. 
Um, they did come up just a little bit this last week, but they're, they're way down from what you would expect a show of this caliber to have, unfortunately. Uh, I'm glad that we did get some crazy before the season finale. And let's dive right into some of these storylines right here. One of the more intriguing storylines, and it went over several characters, was the craft storyline. It's also where we had the most crazy, right? I mean, there was nutty stuff going on while Peter and Elsa were off at their booned dinner. But this is the kind of creepy crazy that I personally had been expecting almost all season. And I know Catfish had been. One of the things that I love, and pardon me for being Captain Obvious here, but just as soon as Maria gives her coyote charm to Tom, that's when Frank really starts going after her. He's peering down through the window and seeing that, and you already kind of get a sense that he's getting a plan underway. Her only protection makes her the biggest victim in this particular episode. And at first, I didn't even put that all together. I'm dense sometimes, so sorry. Um, she gave it up at the most opportune time for Magda, the most inopportune time for her. And Magda, of course, as Elza, is trying to get rid of her. And it, man, here was your perfect opportunity. And man, was it just creepy and crazy. Everything from the blood in the sink Frank's face stretching. Was that not incredible? That was fantastic. And then you have Tommy screaming. The kids are gone. One of the things that really freaked me out was the weird way that one figure was scooting past the doorway. And that was incredibly unnatural and just supernatural. That, that was really wild. All the sounds of the house creaking. Uh, e even the way that Jose when he appeared to Maria in that room, was speaking to her, had a creepiness about it, especially once he turned and said, there's nothing you can do. You just got to leave these kids alone. You've got to get out. Of course, you knew then that it wasn't really his spirit. Probably suspected that all along. But then the whole burning thing and her screaming. And right down, it just goes back to her being in the kitchen. And even the ferociousness with which Frank was swatting at that kettle and looking at her and putting his hand down in the flames. That was so amazing. This Frank character is the embodiment. I almost like to think of Frank as being the safety valve for Magda otherwise. When she's in all of these other characters, she has to kind of keep her cool. But Frank can be the one that vents it all, all that other evil stuff that Magda wants to do to all these people as her different incarnations, but Frank gets to get away with it. So that's just a crazy thought that I had, but that's the way I, I look at Frank as kind of her, her release valve, her safety valve, Magda's safety valve, definitely an incarnation of her. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved all of it. But I am trying to figure out how much actually happened and how much was it just Frank kind of invading her mind and creating all of this. I, I mean, it seems that if she was actually having this happen to her, and if Tom and Trevor was actually having this happen to them, that they would go and report to Daddy immediately. If not Tommy, 
because Maria said you can never tell anybody about any of this at the beginning when he's burying Friar Tuck. You would think Trevor would say something because he was there too at first, and then they were all gone. So I think that this is something that just happened in Maria's head, but it was so realistic that it made us think that it was real as well. Uh, again, I'm probably being Captain Obvious here, so feel free to call me out on it. You can tweet to add DreadfulPod. You can send emails to dreadfulpodcast at gmail.com. You can call 314-269-0421 if you wish. But the whole deal with Frank then being back there at the stove and putting his hand on the fire, that was obviously real. So I'm just wondering at what point did this vision within Maria's head actually begin to happen? How much of the whole day was Maria in this trance, so to speak? And of course, there's a lot of intrigue too outside of the house. The whole idea of Frank coming to the sanitarium to see Linda Craft. I mean, Piper Parabo was awesome in this episode. I mean, I almost fist pumped for her because Kraft is silly for thinking that he can get away with just doing this with the paperwork and everything. And I felt bad for Linda in the way that she just kind of gave up and said, yeah, I'll get my revenge in another way and was speaking about his family again. And of course we get the whole reveal about who Peter Kraft really is in regards to his family. Back at the birthday party, I was absolutely sure that Linda was speaking to Elsa as a person who had been the other woman, you know, and that I was thinking, okay, what did Peter Kraft do to his other family? But the whole family thing seems to be about this reveal that Peter is actually a member of the Krupp family that has been making arms for the Germans for a long time. I mean, I suppose you could think that infidelity or even murder in Germany could have happened still. Those are still possibilities. But this whole armament thing might give us a clue as to why Magda is so interested in Peter. I did love, though, that Piper Parabo just was talking about his whole charade being a house of cards and how little it would take to take it out. Because remember that the making of armaments for Germany was a total violation of the Versailles Treaty. So if the Krupp family was making armaments for Hitler, they would be in violation of that. Peter could be deported. He could be tried as a war criminal, I suppose. I mean, really, Linda Kraft is holding all of the cards. But by the end of the episode, after Magda, as Elsa has tried to make Peter fire Maria over and over, she's tried all different kinds of ways, it looked like there was a little bit of frustration with Elsa, did it not? Is this the first time that we've seen... Magda look a little defeated or at least frustrated in her plan because Peter ended up giving Maria a raise instead of firing her. So she had been playing up this whole thing about his strength and about how he was wrong at the Bund dinner and she only took up for him. 
She needs him to be strong. And then he tells her about who he really is. And then maybe because Peter wanted to be strong, he did the exact opposite of what Magda was saying. He said, here's the Peter crop that you were looking for. So did her plan kind of backfire on her? Or, I mean, she didn't look satisfied, so you can't think that it was going according to what her plan was. But what does this all say about Peter, too? Is Peter just truly this good, peace-loving guy who turned away from his family because he didn't want to make war machines anymore? And Magda's plan has to be to turn him bad? Because... Again, when Elsa first stood up for Peter at the bun meeting, I was thinking, now, wait a minute. She's sticking up for him there against this Herman guy who had been hitting on her just a couple weeks before at the birthday party. She speaks up against him and she does say that she's, you know, for the things that Peter is talking about. But she only did it evidently to save face. But I'm sitting here thinking that if Magda truly wants nation to battle nation then doesn't she want america opposed to nazism as opposed to in collusion with them or is she just thinking well this is all against england now and we'll quickly take that over a quick dominance of the world by hitler to me would not put nation against nation except just very briefly is that all the window that Elsa slash Magda needs. And then that made me think about Alex as well, whose real name is Alexandra Mahler. Well, her real name's Magda, but that's the name she's going with. She's not actually Alex Malone. Why is she offering to help Lewis when Lewis comes to visit Townsend? I mean, could this possibly just be some version of, you know, keeping your friends close, but your enemies closer. That is the only explanation I can come up with. And I had really thought I was onto something with the whole needing America and Germany to be enemies kind of thing with the Elsa storyline early on. And for a few moments in this episode, this seemed to coincide with that. But now I just don't know, given the events about the whole Krupp family reveal with Peter and all. This scene between Alex and Nathan Lane, or between Alex and Mishner, was very surprising to me, and I, I can't quite get my head around it. I'm still trying to digest its meaning or its importance. It's got to have some importance to Magda. So what is it? Maybe it is just the whole keep your friends close and your enemies closer thing. Maybe it's nothing more than that. But it always seems like Magda's turning on herself in some ways. And as far as the whole Townsend storyline goes, I mean, it starts off with Townsend and Beck, of course, being face to face and shouting each other down. And we know that Beverly's hip to Townsend's secret or his uh, sexual preference. And I kind of wonder, because it always seems like it turns out this way, that you find out that if one person knows, that a whole bunch of people know, and they're just kind of keeping quiet about it. But the things that I did like about the Beck and Townsend conversation 
was how she called him out on social engineering, which actually has been part of almost every system of government in one form or another as far back as government goes, right? So this is clearly another applicability issue. I hate using the word allegory. So again, I'll just say this has an applicability to today's world. And the whole idea that the New Deal liberals uh, still have teeth in their head and they're coming after the Townsends, which is an applicability for the Trumps, naturally. Some of that's just a little bit too much smack you in the side of the face with a sack of bricks for me. Not that I don't agree with it, uh, but my political views aren't supposed to be part of this show. Their political views on this show can be whatever they want, and I have no problem with their doing it. I just don't need it being done so overtly that even Captain Obvious can figure it out here. You know, I'm dense, but I'm not that dense. I didn't need it to be spelled out quite that clearly. And Townsend, of course, is very upset with it all, and he's got to meet up with Mishner then, and uh, he manages to cover himself pretty well. He's pretty smart, and that's why Alex comes to to Mishner and says, hey, you know, he's smarter than he seems. Uh, he handled the whole thing from a legal aspect with lawyers and everything very well. He managed to evade, and of course, he instructed Alex to warn Miss Adelaide, too, because they knew that they were all at that dinner. But then Townsend goes out with Kurt, and I remember... Just last week, Goss had warned Kurt about getting too close. And so now I'm wondering, has Kurt gotten too close? He admitted that he loved Townsend this week. But is that real? Or is that just well-timed manipulation? I love that I have to ask that because we really just don't know enough about anybody here to be able to say anything. And again, this goes back to Catfish telling us that maybe this was created for a three or four season arc. And, you know, these kind of reveals are just supposed to be beginning to fill in what we know about these characters. But I honestly don't have any idea of how Kurt really feels about Townsend. I'd like to think that they are actually falling in love. That would be a beautiful love story to me, even though they're both from a despicable group of people in terms of their ideologies love is not one of those ideologies that we have to hate them for that would be a beautiful thing and maybe that's to show that you know evil people are human too and evil people fall in love too yeah i don't need the fairy tale but kurt does clearly seem impressed by the club by the way and I won't be doing a music stuff here now, and I don't know if I'll have time to do it in the podcast with Catfish or not, just due to my own schedule. But just a little bit of music trivia for you. The singer of that song, Stardust, uh, was the name of the song, and she was singing it, and then she was the one who told everybody it was all clear after they had to switch up in case it was a Vice Squad coming in. Uh, that singer was Patti Lapone. And she actually was a Tony Award winner in 1980 for her portrayal of Eva in the musical Evita. Everybody's heard of Evita, right? They had a great movie about it. And 
Uh, It's been a popular Broadway show forever that's run all over the country. Uh, But yeah, this gal was the one who played uh, in the title role in Evita and won a Tony Award for it in 1980. Gosh, she has an amazing voice. That woman's voice was so amazing. It was a great performance of an old 1927 tune called Stardust, uh, which was written by Hoagy Carmichael. And I think Mitchell Parrish or Robert Parrish, I don't know which, I think it's Mitchell Parrish who wrote the lyrics for that. But the other interesting thing about their whole conversation is Kurt basically won't commit murder for Townsend, right? He's First, he starts off real gruff, saying he doesn't work for him. And then it leads up to him admitting that he loves Townsend because he doesn't want Townsend to become a murderer. He doesn't want Townsend to lose that part of himself, the part that Kurt loves. And again, I'm sitting here thinking, is this just manipulation? Is it real? I just don't know enough yet, but it'll keep me watching. Sometimes I think that not knowing enough is the best way to keep a person watching. But that's just me. So Alex did evidently contact Miss Adelaide because she's totally ready for Tiago when he comes into the temple. She is ready for him. And some of it was so off-putting. That really awkward hug when she hugged Tiago for solving the Hazlitt case. And then she gives him a tour of the facility. And really, it looks like the work that they're doing would be good work. But why is she associated with the Nazis? Well, we had the Herman thing talking about the radio yet again in the craft storyline. Herman is the one who was bringing it up at the birthday party. And then once again at this German Bund meeting. I think I said Bund earlier. It's the Bund. Sorry. Is that the play that Goss is making as well? And he's offering to build a church? I mean, all of her answers are so well staged because she's been given time to prepare for Tiago. And she gets a chance to do some messing around with Tiago also, with messing with his head. That whole baptism thing, setting it up to where he sees that Josefina is there. Man, that just seemed a little bit too story convenient for me uh, that she was able to time that out uh, kind of pushing the realities of coincidence just a little bit too far whether Adelaide had planned that or not doesn't matter it just seems like how many people is Molly baptizing today and she happens to lead him with the perfect timing that Josefina will be being baptized the one thing that it did achieve again story conveniently was it put Tiago at odds with Molly so if that was her intent if she truly did plan all of this uh, it worked because he was put off about her till they got together when she came to his house and of course when he was interviewing her in the office he noticed the map too and she was trying to draw his attention away from that which seemed a little weird but yeah Both her and Townsend have that same map in their offices. And we'll get to that when uh, Mishner and and Tiago compare notes here in a minute. But 
I do, since we're at this moment of baptism for Fina that kind of put Tiago off, I do want to talk about Fina for a second because I don't feel like I've been giving her enough talking time on this podcast. Uh, Jessica Garza's doing just a wonderful job as this character. She's not given much to do. I know that uh, Catfish and I both felt a little creepy about the whole thing with Mateo last week. Uh, But other than that kind of, I don't know, abnormality, that one little schism in the character i really felt for fina in this episode in one way it almost feels a little late in the season to get to know her so much better but again we may be on this three or four season arc where this would have been an appropriate time it just doesn't feel like it given the urgency of whether we're going to get anything past a season one or not right now and i'm a person of who has of course lived in white privilege all of my life. So there's no way I can truly relate to the pains that people are feeling due to social engineering or or class casting or racism, like, of course, black Americans or Mexican Americans or anyone who isn't white, really. I have no way to understand their pain. I can be there for them, but I have no way to understand their pain. And this whole idea when Fina is talking to Molly and her seeing her only two options as to either stay home and just end up getting married and living a life exactly like her mother. And in the scene where she went to see her mom to tell her she was moving out, you know, her mom came to that exact same conclusion. Maria came to that exact same conclusion. You're trying to escape my reality. Um, these kinds of things are, are very uncomfortable. I'm glad that this show is taking the time to make us really look at how most people of color have to see their lives as a need to escape, to get away from. They can't just be themselves. They're so put down in so many ways. And I am proud of the courage that Fina shows in doing this, but I hate the fact that she has to do it this way in order to do it. Um, so that was very, very uncomfortable uh, to watch. It's sickening to me that people with so much potential, no matter what the color of their skin, are still cast down, are still, as Beverly Beck put it, socially engineered. And I, sorry, I didn't mean to turn this into a, a political podcast or a Black Lives Matter podcast, but it is. It's it, because of the material that's here and because of what's happening in our world today, you, you learn so much about yourself that you didn't even realize has been right on your radar screen the entire time. And you're just being awakened to all of this. And, um, I'm the kind of person who likes a little bit of reality in, in even in my fantasy television. So this is uh, good, but it is uncomfortable. And Molly's trying to basically tell Fina the same way. You don't have to leave your family. You can become a better person on your own just through your faith. But I love that Molly is there for her, that she's listening to her. And I'll get more on that in just a few moments. But uh, that scene with Molly was absolutely fantastic with her and Fina. Uh, I can't wait to see Fina with red hair 
that's going to be pretty amazing, I think, if it works out. If Molly's as good a hairdresser as she is a preacher, uh, then that's going to be wonderful, right? And then, of course, that other scene that I mentioned earlier with Maria and Fina talking, I wish I knew Spanish because I feel like what Fina said to Maria totally in Spanish without any subtitles to help me understand what was being said was probably the most important line in the episode. So if you know Spanish and you know what Fina said, would you please send an email to dreadfulpodcast@gmail.com or a tweet to at dreadfulpod and let me know what it was that Fina said to Maria in that sequence that had no subtitles under it. I, I feel so stupid for not knowing Spanish, but uh, I don't. And I would like some help with that because I do feel like it was probably something very important. So with that said, uh, back to Tiago here. And when Molly does show up at his apartment, this whole go, no, no wait, stay, that kind of thing in the love story just drives me nuts. I mean, I guess love could make those kinds of things happen. But if it does happen with regularity, then I guess I've never truly been in love. And that's not on anybody but me. Uh, but I, I've always been in relationships where you didn't have to go through all of that. It was either working or it wasn't working and you either worked it out or you didn't. But anyway, I guess I'm glad that they worked it out, even though there was a lot of drama to get there. I do like the fact that Molly will not give up anything about Fina, about the details of Fina, that she'll say Fina has discussed something with me in confidence, but she won't say what. She refuses to do that. And that is, as a woman who is a victim of sexual violence, that is Fina's decision. That should be nobody's decision but Fina's. And I love that Molly respects that. I love that Molly is there for Fina. And while I can't still, to this point, can't truly say that I trust Molly completely, so far, everything she's done in terms of taking care of Fina has been fantastic. And let me just skip over to Matteo also, because that scene with Rio was pretty intense. And I guess Magda has kind of laid out her plans for Matteo to be, you know, like the true leader of the Pachucos. I can't understand how she's doing that because Matteo at the moment when he comes in, I mean, he's demonstrating so much doubt. He wants to go and, and get Diego off the hook. And if I were Magda, I'd be worried that somebody who was so willing to flip would be a good leader for the Pachucos. I have to say that I'm a little miffed that the person who is the coolest Pachuco to me, Fly Rico, he's just kind of been cast aside, both by Rio here in what she says to Mateo and the show because we haven't seen him in an episode or so. And it's been mild, his involvement, ever since the, the, the Riley killing. So Rio 
tells Mateo that they're going to be marching to a throne in blood that he's going to sit on because he's some symbol of hope for the Pachucos. I mean, what did I miss about this? Obviously, as far as Magda's plan goes, I, I guess this is the acclamation of the brother versus brother thing. I, I guess that's what she's working on here. But I'm not quite understanding why Mateo, other than being Tiago's brother, is the key to this. And maybe that is the only reason. Maybe I'm looking too far into it. But Mateo doesn't seem to be the guy that would actually be the right brother for the job. They need a better brother duo to go off against each other. If I was Magda, I'd be looking for another pair of brothers. Because it seems like all Mateo wants to do is just go to his brother and confess and turn himself in and do the exact opposite thing of what brother versus brother would do. I will say this, though. Um, This is one of my favorite Dormer performances of the real role so far. I wasn't big on the dance numbers and all of that. I mean, that's great. It was a great production. It looked fantastic. Uh, Mr. Rosenthal did a great job with the scoring on that. Everything was beautifully shot. But Rio just has never done anything for me as an incarnation of Magda outside of maybe the Taylor scene. But that was just a little bit too over the top for me too. This performance... Today, despite my confusion about what Rio was actually trying to say, was much more realistic, Um, equally cryptic, but much more realistic than the Taylor scene to me. And then at the end, and don't get me wrong, the whole last 20 minutes were great at the craft house and all, but that really just wasn't enough evidently for this particular episode you got to have a good old-fashioned shootout too right lots of explosions as catfish called them last week in this particular episode but before i get there i I do have just a couple of questions about how all of these storylines are coming together we now know how the nazis in this show feel about homosexuality due to Kurt's statements about those kinds of clubs not being in Berlin anymore, and because of Mishner's story last week about his cousin. But in contradiction earlier this season, it seemed that Goss was very tolerant of Kurt and Townsend when he was watching those films with Alex. So how does that all jive together? On the religion side, we now know, of course, that Hitler had some obsession with the occult and that Nazis, I think in general as a policy, wanted some kind of new Christianity that was Jewish free in some way. Not exactly sure how you do that, but that that's what they wanted. And we know that Hitler did criticize many forms of Christian worship, but he also criticized atheism. So, Where does that leave the end goal with Adelaide for Goss? What's going on there? He's offered to help build some churches for her. To what ends or are Townsend and Adelaide truly being used themselves? Or does that 
Or are we seeing that Goss is, you know, a different kind of Nazi? Is the Sister Molly ministry some kind of new Christianity that the Nazis are seeking? Or maybe even feel that they can eventually shape into their version of Christianity? I'm not sure. So those are some questions that are just in my mind as I just come off of watching this episode. But at any rate, I, I can imagine that Mishner is definitely up to his eyeballs with the idea of secrets that Tiago is keeping from him. I mean, it's just been secret after secret after secret. Tiago, where were you when Riley was killed? You know, oh, okay, this is where you were. Well, great. You know this isn't going to work out, but it's still nice for you to have a treat once in a while. That's a weird, weird conversation. Um, but everybody's telling Tiago and Molly from both sides that this isn't going to work for them. So would you bet that naturally like Romeo and Juliet, they're just going to simply not listen and it will probably get them both killed in the end. If we ever get an end, because I don't know if this show is going to go after one season, unfortunately. Now, Tiago and Mishner put the map thing together. So the future of L.A. is the plan for the Nazis? I mean, I didn't quite follow any of that. I'm going to have to rewatch that scene in order to be able to talk to Catfish about it later on this week. And then the shootout happens. So who did this? One would think probably the Nazis, right? Machine guns. That's some pretty heavy hardware. Could it be someone from the outside of that? Could it have been Adelaide? Oh, man. You're probably getting tired of me not using Occam's razor and just going out on a limb with this stuff, but could it even have been Molly? Yeah, you can send your hate mail on that one to dreadfulpodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet to at dreadfulpod on Twitter or you can leave a hateful voicemail 314-269-0421 remember regular phone charges may apply it's a great action scene I just don't know who's doing it or why despite maybe some of the little criticisms that I had I really do think this was a fantastic episode. A really, really good episode, at least, I will say. And I'm not going to give it a rating yet. I'm going to save that for when Catfish and I talk later this week. But in the meantime, I definitely want to hear from you. You can find all of our contact info. You can find backups, YouTube links at dreadfulpodcast.wordpress.com. Please follow those iTunes and whatever else podcast app links that we have there as well and leave a written review we still have contestant spots open to win a copy of season one of this show on us we will pay for your copy in whatever format you choose 4k digital I don't know what all the formats will be that it will come out in in the event that it doesn't come out just because they don't feel like producing it, if this show doesn't get past the season one, I think they would still put it out on, on DVD or Blu-ray at least. But if it doesn't get put out, we're going to give everybody who has 
given us a review, at least a little bit of Penny Dreadful City of Angels swag, a sticker or something like that, something from the official Showtime store. If you have left a review, we'll be asking you to send us an address that we can ship Penny Dreadful swag to you. Anyway, it won't be a big gift. The big gift will be that if we draw your name from the people who have left us reviews, you'll win season one or something equivalent in terms of swag. So do that. Go to dreadfulpodcast.wordpress.com and find those podcast app links and leave us a written review wherever you get your podcast or get this podcast from. Thanks so much for joining me. You can find all of that contact info once again, dreadfulpodcast.wordpress.com. And Catfish will be back with me next time on Delightfully Dreadful. Oh, Send me emails to dreadfulpodcast.gmail.com so or tweet to at dreadfulpod. <laughs>